Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, we find ourselves at a crucial change in perspective. Paul no longer emphasizes the oneness of the church created in Jesus. Now he moves to the maturity of the believer. And of course, this in all things is what he's actually pointing to as he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. The reason that he spent time looking at the unity in the church was because it is the unity in the church that moves believers to maturity. But now that we've covered that, we can actually talk about what spiritual maturity looks like in the life of of the believer, all those who are in Christ. And so he moves to this issue of maturity. Believers are not just to walk in unity with one another, but they are to walk in holiness. And teaching on this topic of holiness, there is a problem that um, I have some hesitancy as we begin to look at this. You see, just focusing on the holiness that Christians are called to live in or the moral purity that we are supposed to have can actually, I think when taught the wrong way, can have adverse effects or adverse consequences. You see, when we just start spending our time describing the perfection that is necessary in our lives, it can force Christians to be crippled in their despair and acknowledging that they are not as perfect as they are supposed to be. It can actually become teaching that instead of edifying and growing the body discourages us and makes us weak. I'm not saying that we should stray away from the conviction that we find in God's Word and as a result not talk about the perfection necessary for salvation, but we should be careful to make sure that we connect the dots that the perfection necessary for our salvation is found in the perfection of Jesus Christ. There's actually great hope in this message. And that's why we have to be careful that we look at it and we understand it the right way. Of course, a second adverse consequence of focusing on the moral purity that Christians are called to, when narrowly focused conversations about this happen, it can cause Christians who are not dealing with the specific sins being addressed to build in their minds some sort of false sense of moral purity or maybe even moral pride. It might even, today we'll look in our text and Paul gives us the phrase, giving themselves over to sensuality. And those of us who are falling apart, who have no um, sensual anything in our lives or, or whatever it else might, might say that I don't struggle with that and so I've become morally pure. And that kind of piety, of course, would be a poor way to respond to God's Word. And as a third possible consequence, failing to communicate effectively the failure of all men and the hope that we have in Christ may cause an entire church to develop a sense of legalism rather than a heart that submits itself to God. I say all that this morning by way of introduction to introduce what we are going to read from Paul, that as we read about moral purity and the holiness that Christians are called to, that we have hearts that are ready to run to God with a submissive attitude, rather than be discouraged, rather than adopt an attitude of piety, or rather than to become legalists that we would be Christian brothers and sisters joined together today in worship as we acknowledge the purity that is made on our behalf, that we are grafted into, and that we have the ability to live in 
thanks to the Spirit inside of us. Here then, rather than drilling down into the causes of depravity of all people, our focus this morning shall simply be on the repeated steps of salvation in our personal maturity. Hopefully I haven't lost anyone yet, because this is really cool. The same steps that we take in order to be saved are the same steps that Christians need to become more mature in their faith. And someone who grew up in Sunday school knows the ABCs of salvation. Admit, believe, confess. Really, that's the only action taken by any Christian whenever they come to know the Lord, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict them and put this burden in their life and they begin to see all of these things. They simply admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe that Jesus died in their place, and confess with their mouth, and the Bible says you will be saved. It's really not a complicated process. So too, spiritual maturity is not a complicated process. And in our text today, we will look at the ABCs of spiritual maturity. The ABCs of spiritual maturity. Because there is nothing complicated about it. Simply that we will do what Paul calls the renewing of our minds. That we would be made aware, that we would be brought near in brokenness, And we would seek conformity. Before we read our text, let's pray. And you can prepare yourself to read as we look at the text in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read from it in just a moment. Our Father God in heaven, thank you for this morning, for waking us up, for um, the sunshine and the daylight and everything that we get to enjoy. and, And God, for the Time's changing, which is an indication that the seasons are changing. God, I thank you for this winter, um, but I'm so looking forward to spring. God, uh, thank you for bringing us this morning and this time. Give us a mind that's ready to worship you. Even if we're tired and uh, dragging ourselves along because we had to get up an extra hour early, God, I pray that you'd give us this time to worship you the way that you want to be worshiped. And as we study your word, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to behold the truth that is in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I will um, read from Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 17 through 24, which is our text this morning, and I invite you to read it along with me as I read out loud. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ." assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
And we said the first step in receiving Jesus as your Savior, once you've had this conviction and the Holy Spirit's actually started the work inside of you by making you aware of and calling out to you, is simply to admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. It seems strange, but I think the truth we could all confidently say is that Christians forget that the first step in their salvation was actually being broken. Actually realizing that they weren't perfect enough to deserve heaven. No one here is. Admitting that to ourselves comes with a consequence. The simple step of admitting that I need a Savior admits that I am a failure. That I have not lived up to the expectation of God in my life. That He created me in His image. That He formed me in the womb, knitted me together with purpose and with all of this design. And I have ultimately, fundamentally failed. To sin means to miss the mark. I have missed the mark of this perfect design of God in my life. And even after salvation, I think many Christians, we want to get away from this as quickly as possible because once I've admitted it, I can run to the saving grace of a Savior who makes me new in Him and I can live in abundance of peace. All of these things that come in this life, and that is certainly something to be celebrated. But there is a caution that Paul gives us here in his letter. He writes about the unity of the body, this mystery revealed in the church, this doctrine of being created new, being adopted into the family of God, all of these things that happen. And he says, I want you to become mature. And here's the first real practical advice we run to in our personal lives, other than using our um, spiritual gifting so that we can serve the church because even our individuality is pointing towards the collective church just, it's, it's wonderful, and he gives us this encouragement in our personal lives. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. It's, it's almost strange that he would even say this when we think about it, because in, wasn't it in chapter 3, the entire focus was that the Gentiles are as much a part of the church as the rest of the Jews who had received God's grace? And now he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. Oh, Brother Paul, didn't you just say that the Gentiles are just as much Christian as we are? And Paul says, you're not listening to what I'm saying. It doesn't matter where you come from. It's who you are now. Don't walk like the Gentiles do now that you're a Christian. Just the same way that the Jews shouldn't walk as the Jews do. Don't walk as the Gentiles do because you are a new creation. He gives us this list that these these. This, these Christians should, should be careful to look at. Don't walk as the Gentiles do because in their minds they're futile. Their understanding is darkened. There's a cloudiness in their own thought process. They're alienated from the life of God. They live in ignorance. In fact, not only do they live in ignorance, ignorance is in them. It's a part of who they are. It defines them. Because of the hardness of their heart, they're callous. I want to be careful when looking at this. This exhortation that we find is not for an unbeliever. 
Paul has spent the entire first portion of this book, I'd say more than half of it, making it clear that his audience is a saved congregation. Still, he encourages them. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. If the first step of receiving our Savior is to admit that we need Him, the first step of growing in our spiritual maturity is to become aware every moment of our walk how desperately we need Him. How desperately we need Him. Look at this. This darkness that is in their understanding. It's similar to what John is describing in 1 John. And if you've come on Sunday evenings, that's what our current Bible study that we're going through is, where he describes this darkness that a Christian is able to enter into, that they walk around unable to even perceive the world around them with absolute clarity. That it can actually become so consequential when we look at 1 John that a Christian becomes a stumbling block for others because they're stumbling around in the dark. This ignorance that is in them. You've all heard the saying, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. I won't tell my mama what I'm doing because if she doesn't know about it, she won't worry. I will give her the blessing of bliss and ignorance, or bliss and ignorance. That saying really has no truth. There's not a lot of bliss and ignorance. Living in ignorance, especially when it relates to our walk and our relationship with God, is a terrifying thing. Because it leaves us not knowing where we stand. More consequentially in our life, it, it, it leaves us without an understanding of our purpose in Him. It gives us a lost sense of our value because we're ignorantly unaware of what we are doing in Christ. And maybe it'll be easier to understand not talking about our spiritual walk, but talking about it in our workplace. Somebody who's ignorant in the workplace, they're unable to realistically evaluate themselves. And I know nobody in here is, is guilty of this, but maybe you work with somebody who is. Someone who is unable to admit that they have failed. You talk to them about something that has happened or some conflict that's going on in their life, and there's no fault in themselves. Well, this person did that, this person, this happened. Oh, I was taking some, some of this medicine, so it made me cranky or all of this. What a failure. That person's ignorance is not bliss. It's actually self, it's going to implode everything in their life. Walking around to the point that you are not able to admit that there is any fault in you is going to cause you to blame everyone around you. Suddenly, everyone's against you. Oh, it's going to cause frustration in your current position because you're going to wonder, why am I not getting promoted? Why am I not being recognized for these things that I do? Because you're walking around in ignorance and you're not even able to realistically evaluate yourself. So you become frustrated. You become discontent. You start blaming people. What do you think this does in our spiritual walk when we allow ourselves to walk in darkness as the Gentiles do? Unaware of our real position with God. Unrelenting in our need, or our need that maybe we don't have any sins to confess. We need God just to fix the people around us. Or to fix the circumstances around us. 
failing to be aware or give ourselves times to become aware is actually a return to the bondage that Jesus delivered us from. This happens in our own minds and in our own wisdom. In our own minds and in our own wisdom. Paul, when writing the church in Rome, gives them this description of what God has done. And I love what he writes in Ephesians because we see the special revelation in God that he's given us the word, that his manifold wisdom has been made complete in the church and all of these different things. But guys, God has been reaching out since he created the world. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. I just want to read from verse 19 really quick. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Well, it's the same language we have here in Ephesians, isn't it? Futile minds, darkened understanding, delivering, being delivered to their foolishness. Our knowledge of God, even before we were saved, was presented to us and is clear to us in the world that we have to celebrate Him in. But still there's Christians walking around dealing with spiritual depression, spiritual discouragement, and all of these other things. Because we... We've forgotten the basic tenet that brought us to salvation in the first place. That in order to draw near to Christ, we had to admit that we needed Him. You guys, this is the same thing that makes marriages work. This is the same thing that makes relationships work. When I admit to my wife, I'm better with you. When I admit to the church that my spiritual walk relies on you. There's a quote, and I can't remember where it comes from. But think about this. If God is all present, He's all-knowing. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. These Christians that deal with spiritual depression and spiritual despair and want to draw near to God. He is already all around, already with you, already caring for you, already reaching out, already ministering to you in the same way that He was already ministering to the world in creation, in the same way that he's ministered to Christians in the church. The real reason we don't draw near to God is because we aren't willing to pay the price 
the price of admitting that there's nothing in us that's good enough for him. The B of spiritual maturity, brokenness. And I've already hit on some of this, but I I hope that you see that a part of admitting that we need God or becoming aware of our need for God in our lives forces us to see how much we need Him. Brokenness. And there's real healing in this. It's it's contradictory to what you would think. You you think that we would um, talk about how we need to be broken for God, broken for the world, that we need to feel the devastation that the gospel gives us when we think about the lost in our community. And that it would bring us despair or discouragement. But it's actually the opposite. Because this is what happens when we lean into that brokenness. We find the person who can heal us. It's like walking around with a broken leg our entire lives. And here we come. And I don't even realize that my leg has been broken because I've been ignoring it. But now that I'm aware of it, I can actually experience how broken I am. And I can run to the great... The great shepherd, the great minister, the one who actually wants to take care of us. And I can actually rest in his presence, realizing that he has made me exactly how he wants me to be. That change will occur. Because many times, well, I actually, I don't think change is ever something that, pe- ever something that people are happy with. It doesn't matter if you think you're excited about change. As soon as it comes time to actually start changing, people run away from it. My grandma, um, my grandma, we lived on, my grandma lived on 3rd Street, and it was an old, old house, a Victorian house. And it, it's really pretty, but it was, it was run down and needed some things to be kept up with. She had lived there forever, like forever which is basically my lifetime and then some, but which is still a long time, guys. She lived there for a long time. The kids were moved out. The house was paid off. It was all hers, everything else. And she wanted to do some remodeling because it had like a lot of the Victorian styles with like the dark wood. And so it was a smaller house that was made even smaller by the darkness that was in the house. And I'm sure at one time that was cozy, but it was time to breathe some life into it. And my dad was a carpenter, and so I remember this was around the time of the recession. And if anyone was in construction, they said in the Great Depression that the farmers felt it first. I'm pretty sure the construction industry felt it first in the Great Recession of 2008. There wasn't any work. And so my grandma helping out was, hey, I want to remodel my house. Can you help us out? And well, we put these beautiful oak floors in. And she wanted to put a fireplace in. So she had to build a place for the insert to go. And, it, I mean, great carpentry. I still love walking into that house and seeing what was done and knowing that I was a part of it. But I remember my grandma's reaction to it the first time really hurt my dad. Because she looked at it and she said, it's just a box. She was excited about the change. She was ready for the change, but when it actually happened... The change made her uncomfortable. The same thing is true in our life. 
Paul talks about the renewal of our mind that we're supposed to be building to. But isn't the same thing true in our life that when it actually comes time to change, when it actually comes time to surrender to God, when it actually requires us to grow in Him? It looks like a lot of work. And we run away from it. Change will not occur until the pain of changing is greater than the pain of not changing. I really want you to hear that this morning. Because some of us have had to learn lessons from God time after time, and sometimes that requires Him breaking us just a little bit. I'm not saying I can control God's will or what He's going to do in my life, but I have to believe if I would be a little bit more embracing of the change that He's calling me to, the renewal that He has planned for me, that I might face a little bit of His loving chastisement. I have to believe that's true. Because this is the description that Paul gives us of the Gentiles, that there would be futility in their mind. That's not something I want. The word futility actually means to have no target, no ambition. It's literally a dog chasing its tail. As we move in one area, the other side moves away from it. We can't actually isolate ourselves. In our thinking, it is futile. There's no, nothing to imagine. There's no aspiration. There's nothing to look forward to. In fact, there's no hope at all. Oh, alienated from the life of God, that an unsaved person... An unsaved person would not understand this encouragement as Paul's giving it to them. But if you're saved, then you can understand this. Being alienated from the love of God or from the life that God gives us. What an awful description. And in fact, in the descriptions of hell that we might come up with, with the fire, with the brimstone, the anguish, the suffering, the turmoil, everything that comes with those descriptions of hell, there is nothing that comes close to any of that as alienation from God. Every piece, every good thing that we have to experience in this world comes because God is still here with us, caring for us. An unsaved person is not going to understand this, but if you've been saved and you've experienced the life that comes from God, you realize what this absence would actually mean. As Gentiles, they were callous. Again, the same description that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 1. The terrifying reminder that, that a Christian who is able to draw themselves into the darkness, it does not take any time at all, and that Christian walking in darkness is now unable to see themselves clearly. There's a lack of awareness. They're unable to diagnose their own spiritual condition to reach out for help if they need it because they, well, as, as John develops it in his letter, first they lie to the people that they're around, then they lie to themselves, and then ultimately they end up lying to God. Christians, indeed, all people, are only ever a moment away from experiencing God's presence. They simply are unwilling to pay the price. Unwilling to confess sin. Unwilling to acknowledge our current state. Unwilling to face ourselves 
That's right. Even to face themselves. Because to come to God, you have to drop all of the pretense that you have and you have to be your authentic self because He already knows who the authentic you is. I think many times when we come into these private moments of worship in our lives, we try to come with the same pretense and the same facade that we put on for all of our friends so that they don't know that we're hurting or they don't know that we need help or they don't know that there's unconfessed sin in our life. And we try to come to God with that same attitude and we wonder why we don't have that relationship with Him, why it's not happening. It's because you entered into the throne room of God with a false pretense. To really worship God requires that you face the real you. That means getting to know your real motivation, your real ambition, your own deceitfulness. That means that you can't walk in darkness, that you actually have to walk in the light, so much so that it exposes every impurity and imperfection that is in you so that you can come to know God. And when you do that, it's going to hurt because you're not as great as you think that you are. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to make you break. Rather, it's going to force you to see how broken you already are. The ABCs of salvation, admit, believe. The ABCs of growing in our spiritual maturity, become aware. Allow yourself to be broken. Allow yourself to be broken. Because the scariest thing in walking in darkness is what Gentiles are described as doing here, giving themselves up to sensuality, these things that will never be able to satisfy them. Because this is what the world does, the unsaved person, the secular communities that we walk around in. This is what they are doing. They know that there is something absent in their life. What did we read in Romans 1? But that God, everything that can be known about God has been revealed since the beginning of all time because He reveals Himself in nature. I love driving to Fort Smith, this road. I don't know what that road is by the, over that way. Anyways, you kind of get on a hill and every single time you get there, like you just see this landscape. And I, man, I pray that there's just no development in this area ever again so that that stays intact. This Saturday when Michelle and I were driving that way, I told her, I really hope Charlotte and Charlie never lose an appreciation of this. Because not growing up around here, when I see it, I am taken aback every single time. I just drive and I go, wow. I see on Facebook, some, uh, I loved the snow and seeing all of my friends in central Arkansas and everywhere else post pictures. God can really paint a pretty picture. Everything that can be known about God, His power is seen in all of this. Everything, everything calling us to God can be seen in all of this. And so everyone walking in this world, whether they're saved or they're unsaved, they're aware of the presence of God. They're seeking it and they're trying to fill it. And the only thing that they can find that can satiate them is to give themselves up to sensuality. All of these things that will not satisfy. In Romans, Paul goes on, Romans 1.28, to say, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, 
So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. The root of really pursuing fleshly sin or any sin that satiates us in any of these ways is because we're trying to satisfy a longing deep inside of us to heal a brokenness that is already there that we've allowed ourselves to not become aware of because if we admit it, then we have to do something about it. If we admit it, then we have to see how broken we really are. And so we're running away from this the entire time. And in the Christian walk, in our own spiritual lives. This is why Paul gives us this encouragement, because you've been saved, and you keep going on with your life, and you do the same thing. You return willingly to the same bondage that trapped you, that gave you over to the darkness of your mind, that you would find something to fulfill you. And by the way, this is why Christians even struggle with the fleshly sins, because they try to satiate something in them that they need so desperately. The love of the Father with things that will never be able to fill that hole. This is why you see people with relationship problems. Because they're trying to fill something in their life with relationships instead of God. No one will ever be able to satisfy the need that we have inside of us to know our Creator. There's no substitute to the Almighty. There's nothing. So I shared with you about my grandma. One of my favorite meals that she ever made, still makes, and she still makes it in like huge quantities anytime the family gets together, is Mexican casserole. It sounds delicious, doesn't it? There's really nothing special in it. It's corn chips, ground beef, cheese, kidney beans. Like, there's nothing really exciting in it. I learned how to make it for myself, and I really struggled at first to get like the, the ratios all correct, and, and I would make it, and I'd be like, it just doesn't, it just it tastes like, what is this? Like it just took, it tastes like I took a bunch of corn chips and ground beef and corn, and I threw it all together and put it in the oven. Like that's exactly what it tastes like. Because that's exactly what it is, but it tastes different when Grandma makes it. Because I realized there's something... It has nothing to do with the food. It's the, it's the fellowship that I have with my grandma. It's the way that she loves me. It's the way that I love her. It's the time that we get to spend together. It's how it feels when my whole family is sitting at the table and, and it doesn't matter what's going on in the rest of the world, but everything's all right because in that moment we're just sitting around eating Mexican casserole. It still tastes like cardboard. I never realized it. I didn't actually like it. I'm just kidding. It's pretty good. But there's a reason why I can't make it at home. Christians do the same thing. We try to experience what we should be, or we we try to get what we get from spending time with God in other things. And we wonder why it doesn't satisfy us the same way. said that we should become aware of our need of a Savior, that we should allow ourselves to be broken facing ourselves. The last one is C, that we would be in conformity. 
of our Savior. Look at what Paul writes in verse 24. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. First, to put off the old self. Paul spent the first two chapters of Ephesians talking about this one topic. You were dead in your trespasses, that's gone. You are new, reborn, you are adopted into the family of God, all of these different things. Put off the old self. Because even when we read in Genesis, God created man and woman in his own image. There is nothing in all of creation that bears the image of God the way that you do. That's special. And yes, sin has come into the world and it has distorted, disturbed, disrupted the image of God, even the image that is in you through sin. But it has not destroyed it. Created after the likeness of God. The righteousness and the holiness that He's called us to inside of every person, this image of God, this divine inspiration for all of us, that is an amazing thing. And when we're called into this new image of ourself, putting off the old self and now putting on the new self created in this likeness, when we're called into that, that's not something to despair at or to think that we are losing ourselves. Rather, it's to realize that in our brokenness, our acknowledgement, our awareness, our belief, our coming to God, allowing ourselves to be broken in His presence, He is getting to know us as He already created us to be. Growing in spiritual maturity is reaching this place of brokenness and coming to the Father, coming to Jesus, and allowing Him to show us who He made us to be. These same ideas of being perfected or being fully furnished or being edified or, being, or all of these different things is coming to the Savior and seeking conformity with His righteousness and with His holiness that He can make us complete despite our brokenness. It is simply returning to the tenets that brought us salvation in the first place. The same Holy Spirit that convicts us of our need of a Savior is the same Holy Spirit that convicts us of our need with time with God. That we would hear about Him. That we would... uh, Look at verse 21, right? The same way that we came to know God, that we have heard about Him, that we were taught in Him. This is the same thing that we need to rely on now in our awareness of our need of a Savior, in our brokenness as we face how much, even in our Christian holiness and our righteousness and everything that we we have, that we would allow ourselves to be broken in our personal walk with the Savior, that He can actually heal us, that we can be conformed to the image of Him. This is edification at its core, that we would be made complete, that we would be made more holy, that we would rely on hearing the Word of God being taught because that's the way we came to know Him to begin with, that we would be taught in Him, which means spending time with Him, There's nothing complicated about this. Growing in spiritual maturity doesn't require a degree from a seminary. It doesn't require special uh, special training or special commentaries or, or anything like this. It requires the same tenets that brought us to salvation to begin with. Admit, believe, confess. Become aware, become broken, 
become conformed. Do you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and the encouragement and the instruction that it gives to us. God, I pray that you would press into our lives the need that we have to come to know you. God, I pray that you would give us application. And as we take a moment now to respond to your word, I pray that you would lead us to respond the way that we should. That we would take a moment to become aware of who we are in you. That we would allow ourselves to be broken in a safe place where we are surrounded by brothers and sisters that love us, that you've called us into unity to, that you would give us the confidence that we need to come to them as the broken people that we are, that we would be encouraged in you, and that you would help us to grow in conformity to the image of your Son. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen.